welcome to No Text Podcast. Hello. Episode three. I've got a cold. I'm really sorry. I'm going to yeah. get out there now. It's okay. It's not like we're in a self-contained room or anything like that. But I don't have a cold in the episode. That's yeah, happened that's since. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> true. Um, I've got a really good story I want to tell you. Do you, Tom? Yeah. You've been you've you've been trailing this story to I me have, for about actually. a week. I was actually. gonna I was gonna say this to Charlie the other day, and then I was like, actually, I need to save this for the podcast. So, friends of mine will know this. Listeners of the podcast have no reason to know this. Liz Truss goes to my gym. Who's Liz Truss? Disgraced former uh, prime minister. <laughs> Blink and you'd miss her, Prime Minister, from <laughs> earlier this year. Was earlier this year, right? Yeah. Spring? No, it was last year. Was it last year? Yeah, yeah. It God. was when the Queen died. The Queen shook hands with Liz Truss and then died two days later. Right, that was it. God, time flies, doesn't That's it? That's mad. That's yeah. actually crazy. Also shows what a f- like phenomenal impact that Rishi Sunak has had on British political know, culture right. this year. But yeah, so big, big development of mine this year on a personal level is that I go to the gym of Liz Truss, which is really weird because without trying to blow up her spot or dox anyone, I go to a pretty cheap gym. (laughs) Um, It's really not a bougie gym at all. It's a pretty cheap gym. It is less than 30 quid a month. And Liz Truss also goes. uh, She goes to my circuits class sometimes on a Tuesday, which is always an odd presence. I've never spoke to her or really interacted with her in any way. Her or all her security. She always comes with security. They used to wear suits and now they wear like gym gear. It's quite a funny development. But I was at a cinema recently. Are we doing a sort of BBC thing where we can't name any brands for some reason? Well, no, I don't mean that. I just like, is it bad to say when, where someone who is famous goes to the cinema? Oh, okay. Yeah, Should fair I? enough. No, no, yeah. no, no. Continue. Sorry. Right. So I was at the cinema and actually I got this bit of intel because I was being a really good person um, there was a woman next to me at the bar who was being really rude to a member of staff and I told her off. She was waiting for like, waiting too long for like a glass of Merlot at the cinema. Like it was pretty pathetic. Anyway, off the back of that, got chatting to the woman behind the bar and she was just like, you know, thanks for that. And I was like, God, what a dick. Da, da, da. And then she was like, I've had worse. Liz Truss is a regular here. Told me that Liz Truss, when she goes to the cinema, when she books, she insists, as I guess is maybe some sort of like governmental post PM, right? That, all the seats around her, it's like four or five rows worth, have to be reserved. And no one can sit within like four rows of her at the cinema. But is she paying for the seat? No. That blew my mind. <laughs> I mean, you know how they have I, all just, these like... I've just looked it up and apparently Liz Truss is worth £8.4 million. Christ. Why don't you just fucking build your own cinema at home then? <laughs> right. Well, or why don't you just get a personal trainer rather than go to like my crummy gym? But... um. <laughs> Yeah, apparently, because, you know, I think they have these like weird, if you've been PM, even if it's for like two minutes, yeah, you have all these various like rules oh, that apply yeah, to you and well, security they... budgets and stuff like that. Right. But but Liz Truss's lettuce like tenure made uh, right. people reconsider some of those things. But I believe uh, she did get to name her, she did get to uh, give out honours, didn't she? Yeah. She got the whole lot. She got the honours, she got the pension. But this isn't... She has a security budget for life, which is like 120k a year. But this isn't like part of the official PM baggage. I don't think this, so. This is her blagging it. She's not looked at like page 400 of the rules and regulations that says, ah, well, if you do book a seat in a slightly don't nice say it. Art, don't house, say it. art house cinema in South East London, then you're entitled to book out. No way. Blew my mind. I mean, surely they're not letting her do that at peak time. Have you seen her at... The unnamed discount gym. Uh, I saw her maybe like six weeks ago. And fun story, it was circuits class, Tuesday morning. There was four people in the class. For the second half of the class, the instructor said we needed to team up with someone (gasps) else in the class. 
So I just caught this woman's eyes next to me and I think we both had the exact same thought. Like anyone but Liz. No. And just like flew at each other. That's not as good a story. We're 100% cutting all of this out, Tom. This is garbage, right? I was going to say, that's really (laughs) dragged, hasn't it? What are we here for? We're here for an interview with CCL. Correct. CCL, if you're not familiar, is a DJ based in Berlin, but with sort of global uh, heritage, as it sort of turns yeah. out, has it's, lived all over the world, really. He's lived a thousand lives. Yeah, has lived a thousand lives. Um, I've seen him play quite a few times now, but the penny really dropped for me sometime, maybe uh, last winter, I reckon it was. Um, I think it was actually when their deck mantle set went up or something like that. And I just went into their SoundCloud and officially listened to all of the mixes they'd ever done and was like, yes, yes. CCL is in fact one of the chosen ones um, and I you know obviously I have a sort of like running list of like top five favourite DJs ever that is constantly updating and changing but uh, well no not constantly updating in fact some people have held their spot for at least a decade um, but I think CCL's nudged it nudged it in yeah. Do you have a spreadsheet? Is this like an actual list? No it's in my head okay. yeah. So we invited Chechi onto the show and they seemed yeah, pretty happy to do it, actually. And we got to do it in person. And yeah. it was a very lovely afternoon. Our only second in-person interview. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the, the first in-person at SRP, not yeah. at Pirate Studios. <laughs> For context, I know this is going out as episode number three, but we've recorded oh, yeah. like another four. Good and point. JK and Ben Prince CCL are the only people we've managed to do in person. Yeah. Which is better. It is nicer. So there were a few things that we wanted to talk to Chechi about. Uh, in particular, we were quite interested in their approach to DJing because they have a very <laughs> wide net, wide pitch approach to tracks in general. So we really wanted to dig a bit deeper on how they actually do some of this stuff because seeing CCL as I did at Fold at the beginning of the year... It's just, it's one of those real mind melters where you just stand there thinking, I don't understand quite what's happening here. Or there are some tricks going on that are not particularly showy, but are just really interesting, you know, selections. They also have a really interesting backstory that hasn't really been dug out anywhere much. They've not done that many interviews and they have a lot of really interesting things to say about uh, club culture in general, particularly like queer club culture of the past like ten years or so, and yeah, we, we, I think we, we think we've got some pretty interesting yeah. things on the and table. They've definitely spent their time in the trenches with that side of things. I mean, we get <laughs> we get into their backstory, but even before they were some deep trenches, yeah, even before they were like DJing professionally, like they have um, they've served their time in the scene, put it that way. And in Bristol, in particular, so yeah, re- revealed that they uh, used to go to the infamous shit the bed night in, yeah. in Bristol. Good stuff. Nice to have a shit the bed mention on the podcast. Where the resident DJ is called Arsequake. Honestly, <laughs> 2007 was a very different time. Different time. But we looked up the flyers and it looked, I mean, it was, it it was pretty actually, lit. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty lit. It was pretty lit. Um, so, yeah, I feel like that's that's quite an extensive bit of teeing up with some unfortunate Liz Truss anecdotes at the front of them. But hopefully that won't detract from your enjoyment no. of quite a long and in-depth and really quite good conversation I think. Yeah I think just a really in-depth profile of someone that I think we both think is one of the best doing it maybe the phrase the art of DJing gets thrown around a little little easily at times but CCO is someone who is you know approaching it as an art form and yeah really doing something special with it so yeah let's patch them in. Please enjoy CCL. <laughs> 
So last night you were at this Wipeout soundtrack launch party. It's true. Please explain, (sighs) what were you doing? It's a a cool game from the 90s, right? It's a cool game from the 90s, and I guess they reissued the soundtrack and had a bunch of people remixing it. I'm not going to lie, despite wanting to be a game nerd, I never played this game. Oh, I'm I not, did wonder. Yeah, I I have not played the game. I feel actually <laughs> this is the first time I've said that. <laughs> did you let the promoters know? Or was this like... I, I wonder if they know I yeah. haven't played the game. Um, I <laughs> sorry, I've not played the game, but I have listened several times to the um, NTS special on the soundtrack. I didn't know that existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one like a year or two ago, and that's obviously uh, it's like Prodigy and Chemical Brothers and Fotech and all of this amazing like super futuristic 1996 music. Yeah, um, and Designers Republic did all the artwork, an right? Amazing so that kind of ties into that. I feel like. Yeah, I, I've listened to the soundtrack and not played the game. I actually don't know why they chose a person who has never played the game, but I feel like all the people <laughs> they booked, I don't know, play like weirder, bassier music or like, I mean, plaid, played or played, depending on how you pronounce their name. And I played back to back with Simosel. And yeah, it was cool. I mean, Simo is definitely a video game nerd. So. Huge respect. I feel like I've just outed myself as the outlier on this <laughs> event, but it was still really cool. And I mean, the soundtrack I have listened to, and I think it's incredible. Um, what sort of stuff did you end up playing? Stuff that was in in the vein of that kind of like intelligent future rave stuff? or I think we kind of... I've played one uh, one B2B before with CMSL, and... It was for his residency night uh, in Nantes where you play all night back to back. We didn't talk about it at all. And wow, it went really well. I, I've actually come to this conclusion that it's better to not talk about it. Right. We should dig into that. That's interesting. What Was there a specific back to back that prompted that? Kind of. I feel like I used to be terrified of back to backs like a few years ago because I was like, I just... You know, I was like, I don't know what they're going to do. Like, I don't want to disappoint them. Like, what if I have the wrong shit? And like, I just wouldn't say yes to that many of them. And then um, I played one back to back with Daniel Physical Therapy at Sustain. And I feel like we talked a lot about what we were going to play. I don't think we ended up really doing that. And then we played another set in which we just didn't have time to talk about anything and it just went so much better and we were like why the hell did we do that like why did we why like yeah I often end up just not doing that anyway and I just I don't know it just feels a bit more natural to me when you just kind of like just end up doing the thing and having like it's like having a conversation. It's like if you prepare the questions too much, it's like... Well, that, like, that would be awkward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's... Yeah, it's kind of a nice nice way for things to flow more more easily. And then and then I feel like you don't get like stuck on how, needing to do a particular thing and it, mm. you're a bit more open. Actually, we both said this after. We didn't really have like video games in mind necessarily, but we had like this visual of like the video game projected on top of us. And I was like, huh, our music makes sense in this context. And I was like, oh, right. Maybe that's why they booked us. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> Do you know why Fred Durst is in so many video games? 
No, this is 100% I, true. I'm not sure I knew that he was, to be honest. But okay. He's in like, the Fight Club video game and he's in all like the WWE like wrestling games of okay. that era. Okay. For a long period, I don't know if this still applies. Um, if you were to license a Limp Biscuit song for a video game, contractually, Fred Durst had to be a playable character in the game. <laughs> what? How did one, he manage that? I don't know, but I think it's one of the biggest like power plays I've ever heard of. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you would choose to play as Fred Durst. I think a lot of kids probably did. Yeah. Yeah. Were you a Limp Biscuit fan, Chechi? I mean... New metal I guess heads. I guess who wasn't when they were like <laughs> right, in that 100%. era to be honest like it's funny I recently was like it's like is it okay to like out myself as like having like that music and I was like yeah I mean I feel like I did like many people did I feel like first two albums is acceptable yeah I right? agree and together now still slaps yeah I mean what was the one that we at fact Acknowledged was in fact an officially good tune. I think that was End Together Now. Is that the that's rap like one? the hip hop one that DJ yeah, yeah. Premier produced? Yeah, that's the mm, one. Yeah. yeah, I mean that one undeniably yeah. slaps. Right. <laughs> so I think I've read all the interviews uh, that there are with you because there aren't that many. There's no. not loads. There's enough that I could read them all. Um, and one thing that sticks out is that you are sort of affiliated with quite a few different places. You seem to have lived in quite a few different places so it's I thought true. maybe we should just sort of map out your story a bit and work out like where you're from where you've lived and perhaps why you keep moving <laughs> wow yeah actually I've never talked on the record about this with anyone Ooh. but my silly little you're life a spy. yeah, yeah I'm a spy <laughs> <laughs> my silly little life is like kind of a long story and that's kind of I don't I still don't really know exactly where I'm from but yeah, I guess suffice to say, my mom is American. She's from Chicago. Hmm. And my dad is Italian. And they randomly popped me out in London, where we are sitting right now. So okay. I was born here. Were they living in London or just? They were living in London. Right, okay. And yeah, we lived here for a bit. And uh, yeah. Um, so you went to you went to school here? No, actually, okay. we moved straight away, um, moved to America pretty much after that. And then my mom um, was doing visa processing for refugees. So she we moved to Russia, which was really random. Whoa. And there I also, I mean, also part of the reason why we moved there is that I got into a dance school called the Bolshoi and I what? was Whoa. A, a child Whoa. dancer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very random. Okay. <laughs> so that's like another... Not just co- any old dance school, sorry. No. <laughs> How old were you then? I was like six. And what? it's kind of a big deal because you don't really pay to go there. You just kind of get indoctrinated and then you're funneled through the pipeline to become, you know, part of their company. So, yeah, I went, you know, that was this era. And so, yeah, I was on the professional dance track for a while. Um, And then after then, I moved, my since my dad's Italian, we moved to Italy. And then I continued doing, yeah, dance school there. And then I also went to regular school. Was that in Rome? mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I lived in Rome from when I was like 12, um and yeah I went to the kind of like academy in Rome and then I also just like 
did school on the side. Um, and then my mom, when I was 16, moved back to America and I kind of was hanging out there alone and had a big epiphany in which I was like, fuck, like I've been doing this thing for my whole life and I don't like it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and like, I don't know. I feel like, well, I also was alone. I wasn't living with my parents. So I was like, why am I doing this? Like, I mean, like, I don't. Like, I love dancing, but I just don't want to do this as a job. And, like, it's been kind of a given that that's what I'm going to do. How old are you then? Mm, like, 16 or 17. Wow, okay. Yeah. And your parents aren't there then? You're no. just at school there? Okay. Yeah. I mean, at I, least you figured it out then. Like, so good. a lot of people wait until they're 40. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the other thing. That's kind of prime time for you as a dancer. Because the, mm. the age is like, that's when you're, like, I would have joined a company after then. Um, hmm. And I was already like doing stuff or performing for money. So it was like, I would have just continued wow. probably. Um, and at that point I was like, the fuck am I doing? Like, this is not me. I remember I was just like, I just want to be in a band. <laughs> I like was just doing this. Like, I also felt really shit. I, I don't really talk about this because I feel really ashamed of this like thing that I did. Cause it seems very unlike me. It's like this, like, ultra femme like art form I guess that I like don't really feel has much to do with like me now Mm. and for ages I just kind of like avoided thinking about it I was like oh it's kind of weird um so then at that point I was like well fuck this and I'd gone to the UK like this is when I started to go to like raves and um I was going to these like parties outside Rome some of them uh, I mean, I think I don't know if you guys know about uh, Branca Leone. It's like a, it's like a, it was like a weird underground club in Rome. Donato Dolls used to play there. It's like drum and bass kind of vibes. And I think I had a bit of a awakening about this kind of music. I was also visiting the UK a lot, and I was like, well, fuck this life. I want to go to, yeah, I want to go do something else with my life. So I applied to uni. And yeah, decided I wanted to go to Bristol because I had been there before and it was very cool and had a good vibe. And I got, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was one of the unis that I got into and I. What did you study? So weirdly, I mean, I feel like I was very confused in the beginning. I, yeah, I I mean, initially I applied for a lot of performing arts related like things. And then I was like wait, no, that's, like, too similar to what you just got out of. Like, what if you end up in that same path? And so I ended up, like, I think I I applied for PPE wow. at Bristol. And then I started doing it. And I was like, oh, my God, everyone is, like, a Tory in this yeah. course. Right. I was that's like, for, this is for anyone scary. For anyone who doesn't know, that's politics, philosophy, economics, <laughs> which is, like, a famous sort of... Well, the, the, particularly at Oxford, it's famously where half of all of the government and yeah. the people who work it's for the, the Times have into the conservative studied. Party. Yeah, it definitely yeah. has a conservative it was, backdrop. Yeah, I, little did I know, I was like, wow, it was infuriating. I think I went to a few like lectures and I was like, need to get out of this. This is terrible. <laughs> but then um, I had been doing... One of the courses that I tried was experimental psychology. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. It's like only exists at Bristol Uni, as far as I know, or a few other places. 
And so I just switched to that immediately and was like, wow, so much better. Way more. Uh, yeah, it was just more scientific, more interesting and yeah, way less uh, Tory. What <laughs> counts as experimental in that course? Um, so it's kind of uh, psychology based in like research and more science-based things. So oh, I see. one of the things I did was, yeah, like neuroscience. Mm. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed was computational neuroscience. Um, so it's a lot, yeah, it's like rooted in studies and a bit more scientific and less of the... You yeah. must have had some quite good grades in all of your other subjects to be able to do this. Were you, in fact, a massive keener at school? <laughs> God, honestly, I must confess that I was. <laughs> I cannot lie to you. I wish I wasn't, but I was a very keen little bean. I think <laughs> I think it was also the combination of kind of like, I don't know, in in when I was in school, I was also doing dance and it's like, I feel like that was kind of like my forced like occupation. And so like school was kind of fun. I also like mm. didn't really have any friends at school or not many. So it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, like this is how I'm engaging with this. Like, I don't know. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, at uni, thought it was, I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting and thought it was, uh, yeah, I definitely... Yeah, God, I hate admitting this, but yeah, I really liked math. Weird, awkward, but um, yeah, it, it was, yeah. Did you play an instrument then? Uh, okay, that's the thing. I remember when I was a teenager, I was like, all I want to do, man, is just join a band and play guitar. My parents were like, no, nah, mm. you have to play piano because my grandma was, a, a, yeah, a concert pianist and oh, wow. they were like, you know, I mean, she she died, and I, I never really understood this until I was an adult. They definitely had some, like, penchant for me to, like, follow some kind of classical pipeline of this right. variety. And that, so, yeah, I did piano, but then I, it was, like, no other instruments, and I also did this, like, dance thing. So I feel like between that, I just didn't really end doing school. I just didn't really have any other time mm. to do anything else. And then I left. I mean, even now I'm like, damn, I really wish I'd, like, I don't know like learn another instrument or one that inspires me a bit more like it's cool like I could play piano like in a very mediocre mediocre fashion but I never yeah I didn't really do any instruments and I didn't do any instruments in a way that was like cool and expressive or anything well now you play the CDJs of course yeah. so yes. that can be expressive in its own way so I'm aware there's like a bunch more traveling and different countries and stuff to get into <laughs> but like were you going out clubbing at Bristol oh yeah Definitely. Right. What kind of stuff? Yeah, what year is this? Yeah, what year, what year what is they, this? What are these nights? So I moved to Bristol in 2007, late 2007. So I was... It was like a solid time. I was there during a very solid time. I'm not going to lie to you. I was uh, also went to loads of horrible things, like horrible student nights in which people are dressed like in onesies and drinking cider. Like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I did. I did. I went to loads of terrible, just like horrible student nights because Bristol also has loads of that. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be the same person if I wasn't there during that time, I don't think. And I feel like I was really lucky. Actually, it was mostly through people I didn't know at uni who introduced me to other, uh, other, yeah, I think, I think I was shown the light, so to speak. 
I mean, I did start going to Subloaded and Dubloaded, which were at the Croft. Yeah, I went to a bunch of the the yeah the the Bristol dubstep nights. I also went to loads of terrible like uni nights, like at I fucking mean, didn't we all? motion. Like, One of which I just remembered was called Shit the Bed. <laughs> I think I remember this. I think I remember seeing flyers remember for Shit, Shit the, the Bed. bed? <laughs> I feel like I've definitely seen it in flyer packs from that era. Yeah, God, that what was... kind of was it? Was it like a dubstep night, or just was it an anything? It goes was just kind of... like I think it, it had some vaguely you know what would be considered now credible music but it was it was definitely aimed at students you know and so by definition the vibes were variable at best i'm just looking (laughs) at a few flyers here scream roscoe subfocus yeah i mean high contrast yeah it check it checks out it's just the the crowd was pretty that's like i mean all of that's yeah basically really good it's not it's just simply the name makes it seem like it's going to be more towards the sort of like bang face uh like well, I don't know. I think if it's if it's literally two thousand and eight, that's probably all quite True. relatively good. Yeah, they, it yeah, wasn't like, it wasn't terrible. Yeah, but yeah, I did no, I did go out a lot during that era, and I think I wouldn't be the same without it. I really did get the bug, and I feel like I was very obviously influenced by having been there during that time. And yeah. I do think it was a really cool time. I will say, I didn't, I wasn't. I wasn't a scene person. I just would go to stuff and I would feel like, oh my God, this is cool in a way that I can't really explain why, but I I like really want to go back and like something about the vibe was really cool. But I wasn't like, I didn't know loads of people there. I wasn't like, I didn't know the DJs. I did. I certainly was not playing anything like that or like even honestly thinking about it. I was just like, going i was just a real like it was a real like i'm an attending like a non-punter for well and also anonymous that's the other thing because people will be like oh yeah like do you know people i'm like no not really like yeah (laughs) (laughs) had you started djing then or was that not 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 exactly i don't necessarily mean out but like just did you Um, have decks and stuff i think like at that point i i mean i (laughs) So it was just like a huge like secondhand thrifter. And I think that was kind of how I first started approaching like collecting music because I just was like really into secondhand shit. Like I bought I had like 30 cameras that I would buy from shops and like try and tinker with and fix them. Um, I actually lived across from Rooted Records, which was on Cheltenham Road. Um, in Bristol and I would like occasionally go in there I'd always feel very much like this is not a place for you because I was just like 19 and like Mm. a baby and also just like didn't really see anyone else looking like me anywhere near this vibe I mean it's still yeah um but yeah I started buying records and I remember I was like what's she gonna do with them and someone had vaguely like (laughs) shown me how to do the mechanics of mixing and I was like well, I would never be good at that because it was just something that I couldn't imagine myself doing. It also just seemed I'm like such a clumsy person with my hands. Yeah, so so clumsy at the Bolshoi with your like I know, terrible always, uh, hand-eye coordination, I'm People sure. laugh, but I have like, yeah, I'm good at like, um, I know, actually, every time I say that, people are like, well, what do you mean? You can dance. I was like, yeah, I can dance, but I'm like... I feel like I can dance with like instruction. I'm not like a natural hmm. 
it didn't come naturally and I feel like I just felt really awkward and like it wasn't something that would ever come to me naturally. Mm. So you weren't pulling any of those like moves you trained at, like watching Pinch <laughs> at the Black Swan or whatever. No. <laughs> yeah, I was like the Black Swan me- meets the Black Swan. Oh, the yeah, yeah, wow. the ultimate crossover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the dubstep ballet like crossover. Oh, oh sure my God. Pitched. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so okay, so it takes you a little while longer to actually start mixing and but you're collecting records maybe? Yeah, I was definitely buying stuff and I remember I was like the stuff also looking back cuz I still I found some of those things. Unfortunately, I lost a bunch of the things that I bought from that era, but I found some of them it was like so random and that also kind of speaks to like what I'm like, but I also really still like the records that I bought. It was like some of it was like 80s boogie and like freestyle and then yeah some of it was dubstep and like stuff that we were listening to around that time but it didn't I was like these things don't they they don't intersect really or I didn't think that they did do you know what Iconica made them intersect Joko made them intersect I don't know if they're that far away necessarily like there's a certain color going on there that's kind of for sure yeah but it's tougher from a DJ perspective as well like especially then like you know, yeah, yeah, the, they yeah, weren't really yeah. intersecting then. Yeah, yeah that is true. Sure. That is very true of you. And now, I mean, I, I would like to think that I want to try and make them intersect. But mm. at the time, I was like, like really random shit. And I just, it, there was no rhyme or reason into like what I was buying them for because it wasn't like I was like, yeah, I plan to do this. It was more just I like used secondhand things I like looking for stuff and it was like oh I like this and it was just part of the whole other kind of thing that I was Mm. doing I don't know and did you when you did start DJing I know yeah we've got more cities to cover but if we just stay (laughs) on the DJing thing for a bit when you did start DJing were there particular DJs that you felt you had a sort of you know you wanted to be a bit like them or had a certain affinity with were there kind of early inspirations yeah I mean I mean, it seems almost a cliche to say this, but yeah, like all the kind of hassle peeps at that time, I mm. was like, just because of the way they were incorporating a lot of different genres. And I wasn't really feeling like that from everyone at that time. There's a lot more like people staying in their lane, but that also was the kind of time of the quote unquote selector DJ as well. And the rise of the selector DJ. <laughs> Which was the thing. And I think that also... That is you, though, so... Yeah, yeah. I know. God. <laughs> I also... We can cover this later, but I think we are marking the end of the Selector DJ for now. The trend is... It will it will come back, but I think that it we're no leaning out of it. No. <laughs> um, or, like, that being a, a, a thing, I guess mm. I think it's... I think people want a different thing, or I'm realizing that... Which doesn't mean I'm going to stop what I'm doing, but I'm just... Yeah. Things, things change. But I think that... That style of DJ definitely influenced, um, yeah, what I was, what I wanted to accomplish. Um, I was wondering about Object in particular, because I know that you've played together as well. And it seems to me like there's a lot of similar thinking going on there (laughs) in terms of being able to like play anything. Because I saw saw Object at Fold last weekend and it was a day party and... Some of the things you were playing were, are like, they're just impossible. They were just records. He, they were just records. Mm. He, liked, he played At The Drive-In, played it Madonna, was. Ray of Light. He played uh, Arthur Russell. And I think, and when I saw you playing, was it February maybe sometime when yeah. you played together? And I thought I thought there was such a lot of conversation between how your, your styles were working together. Oh, definitely. But, yeah. I mean, it's so funny. I 
I think I was, we've now just established this. I was at TJ, one of TJ's first gigs in Bristol. Oh. <laughs> it was really funny. We didn't really know each other, but we were both super young. And I remember being like, oh, yeah, like this is, this is like, sounds like what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I was like, yeah, never happening. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to do that. But I, yeah, we've since talked about that. I was like, there's not many people at that gig. It was like mm-hmm. at Take Five Cafe in the bottom of this like Indian restaurant in Stokes Croft. So <laughs> it was really funny. We were both like mega, mega baby hour. <laughs> I think TJ's since told me like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, fuck, that was so, like, I played so bad. I was like, I don't know. We were all like, yeah. I was like, one of his first gigs, maybe. And I think for me, TJ has this, like, it's the bloghouse sensibility, you know. It's the fact that he used to play that kind of mashup-y stuff. So in his mind, I don't think he comes from any kind of genre purism that he's since had to mess up in any way. It's like, no, everything goes yeah. with everything. So there wasn't anything to unlearn. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Totally. Um. And I guess, like, I also am realizing now that kind of is my basis of understanding. And I think, like, a lot of the DJs I looked up to or kind of had various awakenings to, like, through that culture and also kind of, like, Detroit and Chicago, where it is kind of, like, play everything vibe. I feel like I've had to do some... Sometimes I'm like, do I need to unlearn that? Because Mm -hmm. I feel like now I'm feeling a lot of movement towards a lot more of a purist sound. Mm. And I often am like, am I weird for being like this? So where are you? Are you seeing this at like your own gigs or just like going out? I think I'm just seeing it as a trend. I think that people are wanting a seamless vibe. Mm. That's what I think. Or I'm seeing people are like really excited about that. And that's something I've never been excited about. Um, I think it's it's like, you know, it comes with it's it's a thing in Berlin, I think, because people are playing really long sets and what they expect. I'm not I'm not saying it's like the same the whole time, but you know, you could it's like people are playing a set that they know is gonna be listened to after in like a controlled environment. And they are like, okay, this is like I can listen and I'm like, oh yeah, th- this is like one contained world of sounds Mm. and like Mm. it fits and like it like moves throughout it and that's like what it does and i think that level of focus is really impressive Mm. but i could never do that i also don't really want to but i've always like how is how is that possible (laughs) i I wonder if there's something in the idea of the beginning of the selectors phase which okay we're gonna let's just say it's sort of like 14 years ago or something if you like as being a almost a response in itself to the sudden widening of all the music you could access and the fact that suddenly you know youtube spotify everything's there and then now maybe you have a generation who are overwhelmed with all of the choices Mm. and actually maybe enjoy this the narrower focus and could enjoy like oh well actually three hours of like liquid would really be great thanks because i know what it is and i I don't know perhaps there's something in wanting to kind of put the stabilizers on just to just to get some focus (laughs) yeah i mean i think every trend in music is a reaction to other other things that are happening and Mm. i think even that selector phase was also a reaction to kind of the minimal era where it was like everything was yeah like modular bits modular bits i also like was into that too like i think some of the first records i was playing 
when I was actually beat matching were those kind of records. And Mm. I've also had a minimal phase, believe it or not. But I think like I can see how it is incredibly satisfying to like delve into a vibe and it feels very deep. And it's like, this is the mood. Mm. We're keeping it. And I'm like, I see the value in that. It's just not something I personally want to do anymore. What I find weird about it, though, it's like really interesting you make the point that people are playing like the mix is going to be listened to afterwards, right? Mm. Because to me, the idea of like a constant mood, it's like, okay, I know there is, this going to sound a bit odd, but there's like a certain type of music I might want to work to. Like there's like a totally. certain type of music I might want to cook to or whatever. But like yeah. club, <laughs> club nights don't work that way. Mm-mm. Like club nights should have peaks and troughs. And like to me, even like, this is going back ages, but I remember when like Baseline was really popping off in the UK and people started putting Baseline nights on in London. And it was so boring because you'd enjoy it for two hours and then it's just the same bass sounds for like the entire night. And it's like, mm. there's no, there's no, it just feels unnatural. Mm. And it's totally. like nights to me, like really successful club nights need those like changes in mood. I always bring this up, but like one of the best moments I've ever had in a club was we did a thing at Corsica years ago. And like room two was like, getting quite hard and fast and Al Wooten came on at like 3am and just played an hour of dancehall and like the energy it brought to that room mm. just dropping the tempo down like God, 30 bpm I would have lived to be there like <laughs> it people, was so great people being there for playing slow music is so rare these days I cannot emphasize enough because that is so, like something I want to do constantly and I even had this conversation with Seema last night because we both live for the 100 bpm zone and is incredibly difficult with crowds these days to get people to be able to lock in i we were both saying like because it's it's so hard Mm. to make people like stick around for it that we feel anxious doing it which Mm. is really such a bummer because it is such a sexy zone and I don't understand why people don't think you can dance to it and people will literally stop. And I'm like, this is like, encourages the most sexy dancing possible. Like, what yeah. are you, I don't understand. And I feel like deployed well. It's like this Alwoon example I'm talking about. <gasps> it was like the crowd didn't know they needed it. Yes, but the minute exactly. he did it, it felt like the tension in everyone's shoulders just dropped. And it yes. just, it honestly felt so like essential. it gave the room an extra like hour of energy because exactly. it just made people shake it up a little bit you need that's why i mean people are always on at me about like ah this tempo changing is a gimmick and i'm like it's a gimmick if you want it to be but i'm like i don't think of it as a gimmick it's like not something i do to like flex or anything it's because i actually think we need a change in energy and i feel like i can tell people need it when people are dancing to like 140 bpm for like two hours i'm like and i can see people are just kind of like you know losing it i've always been like okay what what different energy can i bring to this and like there's a bunch of options but that is always one of them that i'm contemplating because it just shifts everything and i think actually the act of doing that is incredibly sick 100 percent. i think there's also that thing where a lot of people i think this is like Perceived wisdom that like a club night should either stay at one tempo and one zone or it should get faster and faster as the night goes on. And then yeah. sometimes you just Hell go into like no. the second room at Corsica at 5am and it's like two people dancing to Gabba. And it's yeah. like, if you just dropped That's... back down and played a disco record, you would probably fill this room because the smoking area is pretty looking pretty busy. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, oh this brings God. me nicely to a question. I was a bit curious about 
uh, some of your kind of USB organisation, some of this stuff. And I was wondering a couple of things. Maybe uh, got any new record box folder names that you've been using recently that have been working for you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you. (laughs) What's been this year's most dug into folder? (laughs) I... I think like I have been refining my 100 BPM playlist and finding tracks that are driving enough to make even the most stubborn people dance. Because mm. there is, I think, like the line between um, people thinking something is down tempo and something is driving at 100 deep BPM is really hard. So mm. um, I have a playlist called... 100 bpm high energy which is then i actually in my honcho set which i just finally decided to publish it's like you can i have (laughs) i mean i have there's a playlist called horny dark and hard <laughs> Which is like exactly Perfect. what it says. Yeah. It's like you know. That's what they originally going to call Berkine. Sounds like a spoiler and catch enough. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's all a hundred BPM, and it's like you know, kind of the intersection of like sexy, wonky, and also like extremely danceable. But it's also mm. pretty dark, and I think it can it works when like yeah, you've had a section of high energy, like faster things and you want to go down there i think that can be really cool zone to unlock yeah how much do you prep for specific sets or is it Mm. like the record box folder is just this ongoing amorphous thing and depending on where the state of that when you're booked that's what people that's what people are going to get i have such a a weird relationship with record box organization during like a, a year after the pandemic my record box stopped working and i was such a (laughs) record box just focused person for a while and it just i it would just freeze when i opened it and i couldn't apply like use it's a great program i know (laughs) excellent program i once heard someone say (laughs) that they love record box in an interview and i was like okay maybe they just haven't updated for about four years i was gonna say i didn't mind record box until i finally updated it and then it was like oh my god now i get what twitter is talking about (laughs) it's it's a yeah i think it's a pretty cursed platform but i um i lost the ability to update any playlists like even like for some kind of like high stress or high pressure gigs um that year like playing at sustain i wasn't able to update my playlist oh wow and i wasn't able to do anything and that really taught me something and i kept being like Okay, you're yeah, like you're not prepared and you're going to play worse sets, but I kind of didn't. In some ways I sometimes played better and that really changed my perspective on anything. I'm not going to lie to you, I still do a lot of prep and I'm definitely like like yeah, I mean I have my 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 nerdy ways in which I can go into, but I also feel like I prep, but it's it's more of a compulsion than like a a, a direct like need and it's it I often feel like when I'm like super winging it it feels really fun I think there's a lot of infrastructure I put in place to feel like winging it is really fun yeah um I don't I've never like been a person who like would plan out 
XYZ of like anything. Obviously, like a certain amount of infrastructure is good so that you can find what you're looking for. But yeah, during this period, I would just like, I would think of tracks and just use search and have to search them on my thing. And that's how, but it also reminded me of how I would play when I would play records because that's kind of what would happen. I'd be like, oh yeah, this one. And like, I'm not like scrolling, like scrolling yeah. feels feels like it cuts all of my like intuition away from me. And it, it doesn't give me, it, it feels like I'm making a calculation more than like a judgment based on my intuition, mm. which I think often my intuition is always really correct. And I learned this a lot, like also during the pandemic, someone like lent me there or someone I used to like buy a lot of collections and I would just take records from them and sell them on. But someone, a friend had bought a collection and they left it at my house for like six months so I had like thousands of records at my house and we just would play this game where you'd have to pick a record and you'd have to make it work somehow in the in the flow we would do this like with friends or I'd do it by myself and that also was like it's like sometimes you just make shit work like you just know this that you need to play this and you fucking make it work and you can do that by um like I don't know like a bunch of different ways and like learning different creative ways to mix things but that also is kind of a part of my philosophy like if your intuition is telling you you should play this I think you should play it and that kind of also goes against this whole like mood vibe man vibe which I kind of like can't really with because they would be like oh no like you have to find the perfect track that will like fit exactly with the other record I'm like I don't know man like I feel like I should play this right now it's not going to be a perfect like seamless techno beat match mix but i know that it can work and i'm gonna make it work are you into the effects i am into effects and i'm not gonna lie getting this like delay pedal i used to have the eventide h9 which is like a crazy production pedal that you can apply a lot of effects i now i i would do some very silly things with that. But then I realized it was perhaps too silly and a little gratuitous. And sometimes, <laughs> uh, and then sometimes I'd be like, I'd be like, oh shit, it has a mind of its own and it would like really act out. I mean, you, I think if I play like a super experimental set where it's not like dance floor focus, you're going to do some crazy shit with that thing. <laughs> but now, now I'm playing more dance floor stuff. I have another pedal, which is, um, it's called uh, Boss Digital Delay. It's just a, it's a, just nice delay device, but I think I wouldn't get away with 90% of my bullshit if I did not have this pedal. Um, because you can really like, like if it, it helps things really glue together and you can really like, for example, the hundred BPM zone, they're just, they're songs. They're not, they're not dance tracks. They're not made to be played like, well, it's going to mm. beat match this blend, man. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, they're, they're not structured like that. And like, I make edits of them and whatever to make them more playable. But you, you sometimes want to dub tail out of something and then play another thing into it. And that gives you a tremendous amount of creative, like creative freedom to do that. Um, can we get into the nerdy side of some of your record box techers because I thought yes. especially as someone who used to like I had a residency years back where I was just it was a hip hop and R&B thing every Friday seeing you say that you matched uh, you converted everything to half time on your USB mm-hmm. is like genius because I yes. was just looking back and I was like I would have never had to constantly scroll between 70 and like 140 at like 2am looking for potential blends yeah, I mean, that was 
So I'm not going to lie. I've actually like maybe I now have maybe abandoned the system just because I have so much music at this time. But that was like (laughs) a huge brain unlock moment for me. And it really um, changed the way that I think about uh, mixing as well. I, yeah, I started analyzing everything that way. And then I was like, oh, so much music can be mixed together and I don't have to scroll and I don't have to think about it. So that was a huge game changer. Now I have like so much music at that tempo that it does require me to scroll a lot. So now I do designate what is double and what is halftime, but I just kind of know in my own brain and I, um, I've now kind of erred towards analyzing at double time because it makes uh, it a little bit more accurate. And then I will put in parentheses halftime if it's halftime. So I've kind of done the opposite. So just because it's a little bit easier energetically, I think, to designate something as halftime if it's halftime than the other way around. Of course, it will be a more accurate number as well. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. it will be more accurate. Interesting. So I've kind of like done the the opposite now, but it really did help me. kind of figure out how all these things can be glued together yeah let's go back to the ccl origin story let's go back to the origins so what's next you kind of catch the bug in bristol i caught the bug (laughs) yeah caught the bug and then yeah i had to get out of england for various reasons i mean i was just having like I, i don't know i was just like really broke working like three unpaid internships and and it was 2012 slash 13 and it was not a good time yeah yeah and this is still in bristol or had you gone to london at that point i had i had tried to move to london yeah but it was just incredibly expensive Mm, and i was just barely making enough money and i don't know i was just like very burned out i guess i was working at many like many different random ass jobs that were not paying me enough and just needed yeah and also i was just like in a lot of like very weird relationship related things and i was like i need to get the fuck out of here um so i my mom who had moved to seattle when i was 16 was like why don't you just come visit and i was like okay i will come visit and i went it was like December of 2012. Uh, took a flight there. Ended up missing my flight back. And I was just kind of stuck in Seattle. And I'd never really been there before. And I was like, wow, this place is so weird. I just didn't really... I didn't know a single person there. Um, I also... It just felt so different to the UK. Because the UK had such a huge underground electronic scene. I was like where what is this place this is like yeah like grunge capital lots of other cool things but I just that wasn't really like I also wasn't that and became into it but it was not what I was used to I would say um so I moved there and I wasn't really expecting that I would stay because I was like this place is so weird I don't know anyone I like definitely struggled through the first few years I just felt so lonely didn't really know anyone and had no like reference point of like what was going on there but I remember at the time I saw an ad on Craigslist that was like do you want to work in the music industry come to this like (laughs) 
this like <laughs> cattle call like interview. This doesn't sound promising. No. <laughs> I mean, actually, strangely, it weirdly was. Yeah. Um, I like went and it was this venue in Seattle and they were like hire, just like hiring a bunch of staff and I ended up working there and it was like a very multi-purpose type of venue like all sorts of different music there what's it called uh it's called the triple door mm-hmm. and it's mostly like sit down like shows but they also have like upstairs jazz and all sorts of things through that I met the people who do decibel because they did an event there and I got involved with that and I also met a bunch of people who just like were doing music but they were all I mean I was like I've never heard of any of these people why (laughs) is that it's so weird because I remember some of the first things I went to I was like wow this is incredibly cool and I've never heard of any of these people no one ever talks about this place and it's incredibly invisible like in terms of what's going on there one of the first gigs I went to my friend took me to and um this guy called Black Hat was playing and he's like a noise kind of techno artist. And he was just like playing this crazy gear, like the most crazy music I'd heard. And it was like his eyes were just like rolling back in his head and he looked possessed, but it was like so sick. And I was like, what? It was so also so punk. I was like, this is like the vibe I've been looking for. I was like, wow, how come this is like no one knows what this is? And it just truly is just kind of off the off the radar it was really really cool so that's kind of how I ended up there <laughs> what what is decibel for um the uninitiated so that is just a very big electronic well no actually no it's just a very big music festival and it was it happened when did it first happen in 2008 I think and it was kind of like one of the biggest things happening in North America and they had like yeah, loads of super underground like electronic things, but also like Erica Badu and like it was really like a mm. cool operation. Um, and yeah, I got involved through some very cool women that I met from around this kind of time. And it also was weird because I would never hear about this if I wasn't there, but it was mm. such a big thing there. Um, and it brought a lot of people to that Part of the world when that wasn't really a main stop stop off point for anyone because it's geographically incredibly cut off that's the other thing like it's so far away the closest place you can get is like portland which is a like tiny city mm. it's three hours away like in terms of america mm. it's like i mean the scale is yeah. insane and to get to sf it's incredibly far to get to la it's incredibly far it's just kind of a tiny place in the middle of nowhere in the end of the day. It, I mean, it has a sizable population now, but it's it's hard to get there. Mm. Yeah, it does feel, I've never been to Seattle, but I actually have several friends that live there and it's like, it does feel weirdly like siloed off as its own thing. That's always the vibe I get. Yeah, it's incredibly siloed off. So you're there, you get like, that's your kind of first like job in music kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you're working with Despo, you're, you, so you were doing, you were like helping with bookings or... Yeah, I mean, I helped with, like, I worked with a bunch of the people who did a bunch of the content for them. So, like, we were doing, like, yeah, like, streams and interviews and this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I helped I helped set up the first Disc Woman showcase there. And I think it was Jalen's first ever gig. Sick, okay. Because um, I had, like, been obsessed with footwork and I 
heard about this person, Jalen. I heard about her music and I was like, this person is so incredibly talented. And yeah, I remember she told me after the gig, she was like, that was my first ever like out of town gig. And I was like, that's crazy. You're so good. And I was like, wow, it was so cool. Wasn't she like a firefighter? She worked in a metal factory. Oh, who is it that was a firefighter? I think it's someone else. Anyway. Jana Rush, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, similar. They're so cool. but Yeah, that's fucking sick. It was, yeah, back in those days. But it was, I don't know, it was really cool. And I think working on that project, yeah, it did help me a lot. Um, And then I also started through that doing bookings at, or yeah, helping book Cremework and working there. Um, What's that? Cremework is a beloved, maybe, I don't, I actually have no idea what its fate right now is, but was this underground queer club in Seattle. And it was one of the only places that had regular electronic music at the time, Mm. but also like drag. And um, we started, yeah, me and a friend started a night there, which became like the regular night, um, which is still going apparently. What's Crazy. that called? It's called Research, which is such a dorky name. My research <laughs> at Kremwerk. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's serious stuff. So yeah. dorky. Um, <laughs> so self-important. Anyway, whatever. I like look back, I'm like, oh, what were you thinking? Were you a social worker? So I worked at the crisis clinic, which is a kind of social work oriented org that is a branch of the suicide hotline, which kind of deals with crisis intervention work. And yeah, it is, it is social work. And I was during that, I wanted to also become a social worker and I applied for school and was, um, yeah, I guess like working in order to be trained in that. So yeah, I, was on that path, and that's also one of the jobs I did for a while. Um, I I got into it because I first started working at the Suicide Outline when mm. I first moved to Se- Seattle. It was also because I was incredibly... I didn't know a single person, and my uni career was very, like, academic and, like, theory-focused. And, like, when I first... I first started working uh, after when I moved to Seattle in clinical like applications and like research studies. And I just was like, this is so far removed from like the people aspect. And I don't know if it's, you're working on like a long longitudinal study. And I just didn't feel like it was going to impact anyone or any of the things I was seeing in real time. Like Seattle has an incredibly large homeless population and has undergoing an opioid crisis. Um, So I was like, okay, I want to do something that's more like direct. Um, So I heard a lot of people had started working at Suicide Hotline first. So I started working there and it's kind of like, there's an org around it that kind of works with a bunch of the mental health agencies um, in Seattle. And so, yeah, I did do that for a while and I was, yeah, working on that for quite a while actually almost like the entire time I was there in various roles um yeah Mm. okay why did you move to Berlin so I think it was the year 2019 and I was working (laughs) the last good year (laughs) the last good year I was working at that point (laughs) I was working at that social work job I was also one of the directors of New Forms Festival in Canada 
I was also working like on my own, like kind of freelance projects and like photo projects. And I also was at that point DJing quite a lot. Um, And I think I just experienced an insane amount of burnout um, because I was working full time. Mm. Um, And I also was living in a geographically very cut off place. And like in order to do like gigs, it was just incredibly difficult And I also had this huge, I think I just had a big realization moment. I was like, I have always wanted to do something creative. And I had another feeling like I did when I was like 17. Like I've just been like doing the motions of something that like in theory I really like and I really believe in. But I like have like an almost like an itch to scratch in like a creative way. I've never Mm -hmm. felt like I've been able to do um music or any creative thing as like a job Mm. and it became more and more like oh yeah maybe that could be possible Uh, and maybe I want to try that even if it doesn't work out for me just because I mean that in a in a more general sense I think I just also didn't want to be employed by a person and (laughs) Um, I I just wanted to do more work for myself and I guess be a freelancer because that's kind of what I was doing. I mean, at first it was like, oh my God, you fucking idiot. Because the pandemic happened like three weeks later. Oh, right. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. Like, of course you quit all your jobs to do to be a freelancer in a time when there is no work. It's mm. like, oh fuck. But actually I don't I don't know if I I don't think I regret it. I think it was it was it was necessary. What did you do for that first like year or half year of pandemic in Berlin then? Oh god. I mean you obviously knew some some people there I guess. I did. Yeah. I'm also guessing you weren't as someone who just moved you weren't eligible for any grants or anything like that. Actually, they were incredibly uh generous yeah, with that. Yeah, it was that. okay in Germany, right? Like, mm-hmm. Artists got like a lump. Artists got a lump right. sum. That's yeah. how I survived. I was incredibly lucky. If I was in America that would not have happened. So yeah, yeah all yeah, freelancers true. were able to get. Yeah, maybe that was a good place some. for you to be in some way. Yeah. Honestly, so. that's I why. I wondered if it applied could you just moved, but I mean, obviously, it, no, yeah, it, it it worked. I don't know. I have no idea why, but I'm not questioning it. <laughs> just like worked out fine for some reason. Yeah, I actually retrained during the pandemic. I was like, I was like, fuck, I'm never gonna like work in this kind of work again. I was so I retrained doing like coding and like UI oh, design because wow. I was so like freaked out, and then after I was like never getting books again uh or like never doing that kind of work again and then I don't know it was kind it's kind of been fine yeah so you tweeted about the c-minus mix series going offline earlier this year and I quote it's crazy that an entire community hundreds of mixes music content comments can be gone in just a minute and this is like my catnip for the record like this (laughs) like plagues me but me and Chow also talk about it a bunch which is like we're living in this age where like it feels like the last let's say 15 20 like the internet era of like digital archiving feels like it's hanging by a thread like oh my god everything is one unpaid hosting subscription or an unpaid soundcloud subscription or whatever away from disappearing is that something that eats at you the way your face is implying right now it is it eats at me so much also because um i do know that i am like a mixtape DJ and I came, I arose from this era. And it's also 
it's kind of your catalog to an extent. Yeah, right? it is like, my catalog, and it's also like um, I think for us in Seattle, it's like no one is going to see you at a high-profile gig in which you're going to get booked at and like get to play in Europe. Like, and mixtape culture has been around for a really long time, and it's something I'm also really nerdy about. Um, but the difference was back in the day, the DJs would make the mixtapes and they would own the content themselves and they would distribute it. Now we're like being convinced that we should release our mixtape or whatever on other platforms. And then basically that platform owns your tape, whether you like it or not. And I've been thinking about that because I've had actually several incidents lately where like my, (laughs) my archive is gone missing Mm. and then i've been like oh shit i don't even have a copy of the file anymore and like this person has my 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 archive and they could all delete it and i would have nothing to my name i mean that's pretty much it and then i was like shit that would be really bad i mean i guess in in scenarios as well where it's like a maybe a live set that's been recorded by the venue but you you know you don't have that file until it appears on SoundCloud or something exactly. like that. Yeah. Yeah, or also like I mean I've had several hard drive deaths. Oh. You know, things from like a few years ago. I don't I just don't have that file anymore and mm-hmm. I kind of I recently was like, "Oh shit, do you have any of your files? Like I don't have my Honey Sound System mix. Like I don't mm. I don't know where it is. Like I hope it doesn't ever disappear, but it could." <laughs> For the record, the C minus is back up, is it not? It yeah, is. I meant yeah. to say temporarily, but yeah, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the fear is still well, the same. So, I mean, we had to, like, me and a bunch of other people were like, what? Like, how can it just go away? And I guess, like, the person behind it ended up explaining, like, they just were super broke and they didn't have enough money to maintain the site anymore and oh, they just yeah. wanted to delete everything and be done with it. And, like, me and a bunch of people were like, look, We'll pay your nine euro a month yeah, to like crazy. Sure. keep yeah. open your site. Yeah. Like even if you don't want to continue it, it's like this is an, an incredible archive. And luckily, like Ian Kim Judd got involved, and he's like very interested in digital archiving, and he has taken over the project, which I feel really good about because I think someone who has an investment in like digital archiving as a thing is like really important to be behind this kind of stuff. Because yeah, I mean. Mm. otherwise i'm like what are these i mean i also have been thinking a lot about like platforms and like people soliciting content from people and then them like owning the rights to it and it's like that is actually an expectation these days like Mm. so many like events or festivals hit me up constantly like it is yeah like you should do this for us and i'm kind of like i don't know if that like tracks for me 100%. I'm like down to like promote and like do other things, but like this is like something that I don't know. I feel I'm definitely feeling like second thoughts about giving my content to people for use of them for unknown means and like wh- whether or not I will ever get to have that so now i'm kind of like i just want to do my own thing Mm. i don't know yeah i mean nick boyd made this exact point on our last episode where he's talking about boiler room and i don't mean this to target boiler room specifically but he was like there is a decision you're making to give them your brand when you work with them and whether you do it or not i think it's a thing that people just unconsciously do Mm. and don't think about the potential implications of that particularly down the line yeah i think as well there's a 
there's an interesting history of some DJs, I mean, I guess slightly older perhaps, who still put out Bandcamp mixes, right? Like mm. Eris Drew has done a few, um, DJ Harvey has done them, where it's like you can buy the mix from them via yep. Bandcamp. But I'm guessing that comes with, you would know this, Tom, but that must come with all kinds of problems about legal. Or I think it does if you do it properly, the, but yeah. I imagine when it's Bandcamp mixes, it's, yeah, you know... I think Eris, Maya and I are all equally super nerdy about this because we all kind of come from this like brain of like the DJ mixtape as like a thing. Mm. Um, and like we, we like I've spoken to Eris, it's like, it's like our album. And yeah. like we yeah, approach yeah, yeah. it this way and it sounds silly because it's like, yeah, of course it's, I mean, I also try or always make sure especially with these to like document the track list because it is also other people's music and i feel well yes an immense amount of part of it isn't it responsibility reporting that so um i was thinking about uh when you played at uh eris drew's temple of dreams residency at corsica studios two months ago now maybe and um so that's the most recent time that i've seen you play and i i wondered about your kind of reflections on that set in that party because I, I I would like to maybe open up a question about what a queer party really is and I guess I'm interested in something to do with like dance floor affects, dance floor mm. vibes um, because I felt that you know Corsica Studios is not historically uh, a queer venue in any kind of way and I was just thinking about maybe maybe you have some thoughts about what kind of dance floor experiences um, you have had that have maybe shaped your thinking about like how to play in different zones or yeah, maybe you could say a bit about what that set was like for you as a starting point. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely enjoyed myself and it was just a huge, I just love playing with Eris um, <laughs> because she has a just so much energy. She's yeah. just a force of nature, you know, <laughs> yeah. like being in her midst just gives me an incredible amount of just energy and just um inspiration because she is herself and it just comes across so strongly in a very beautiful way Mm -hmm. and this like musical embodiment i think like um in general the way i play is i think just very different to what is expected at i think like necessarily queer parties um because it's just like yeah, I guess it's not the stereotypical music you would hear. And so I always feel like when I'm put in an environment where, yeah, most of the DJs are playing more house, I often want to, like, I I, I have been thinking recently a lot about this because I really, I really admire people who are just stick to themselves no matter what. Mm. And you know, just do their thing no matter what the audience is. But I think in these environments, I also want to bring people in a bit. So that was like definitely a way more housey set than I would ever play. And it was way more fun and way more mm. party. I mean, I'm going to say it wasn't that housey. It was it was a bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, it was like housey you, for it me. Wasn't like, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like you just brought the, the you know, okay, the same that's kind cool, of records. Yeah. No, it, it was a bit. But you know what? I mean, Eris at any gig but she'll play like garage baseline a lot mm. of stuff that maybe you, you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear at that type of no party exactly well, so, yeah. no yeah eris is also um has her own 
sound, which she describes as the mystery, which is really cool and way more like, yeah, it's less, less overt, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but even like, I don't know, for example, at Honcho Campout, it's like I play a side of my sound that I feel like is like incredibly me, but also like incredibly different than what I think. I don't know. I always just, I always know that in the beginning, like some people are going to leave. Some people are not going to be receptive to it. And like, I have to kind of suffer through that. And I've realized that I, I actually believe I should do that more than not because otherwise I end up compromising too much. And I feel incredible. Like I've, yeah, I just feel like I've betrayed that myself. I think there's always a like middle section of like things that I like that other people obviously will be there for. But I think a lot of the time I can be kind of a bummer because I'm not playing. (laughs) I'm not playing like, you know, like, I don't know, panorama by our house music. Like, Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of people want to hear that. And I'm playing things that that are a tempo and are, are, are of a mood that are like, maybe not overtly like euphoric because Mm. like i don't know the things that i like playing i think are complicated or like not not in like a like highbrow way just like i feel like i'm really attracted to moods and things that feel like difficult to pin down Mm -hmm. and that also can feel really uncomfortable for for some people because it's not like this is euphoria it's like this is like i don't really know what this is but I like really like it. And there's something about this like, ah, uh, God, I also hate this word, but like intangibility that I'm really drawn to and bringing that into spaces where it's like, yeah, there's like a precedent of like, we're like all experiencing like euphoria and that's 100% the vibe can feel kind of like a bummer. And I know usually at the start of my set, I'll like lose people or it'll be difficult to gain their trust. And I've noticed myself being like, oh, God, I want to like win people back or I want to like do something else. But I realized the strongest point of doing that I can do is just like sticking to my guns and being like, what do I want to communicate here? Because if I'm too worried about what other people think, the whole point of me doing this is entirely lost, Mm. I think. And in my opinion, that's why a lot of things, I don't know, sound the same because I think a lot of people are just trying to appeal to everyone and Mm. I just don't think that's useful (laughs) and I don't I don't enjoy it but at the same time it's like I do I do DJ for people like I DJ because I want to like experience something with someone so it's it's not like I'm like trying to alienate people but I don't even like honcho I was like I want to play 160 bpm at this rave at some point and like I don't I don't know I personally have never seen anyone like carry that out in on like the main stage or not recently and I was like yeah it's incredibly risky and it's funny in my recording because I recorded the crowd noise in the beginning of my set as I almost didn't listen through to the whole thing because there's so many people casting mad shade on me there's like this is not the vibe oh my god what is this and I'm like, oh, that's I'm, amazing. Oh, you should include like, Yeah, you have that. to keep that in. That's so, that's so good. It's so good. But I also like, I also was like, this yeah, that's right. Vibe. It's not the vibe. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's not your vibe right yeah, now. And that's yeah. fine. In fact, I want you to leave if you're not going to be into it. I don't really care. Did, like, um, <laughs> from the, I've seen just a few clips that you <laughs> uploaded from Honcho and I mean, I, I, no, no doubt you didn't upload necessarily lots of clips where people are standing there saying this is not the vibe but um, <laughs> it looks like it turned out well right um, 
Can you just explain a bit more about Honcho, actually? I, I was going to ask about that first oh, yeah. in particular because I'd love to go. Oh, um, you should And it go. just seems um, like, I don't know, it seems quite a unique proposition in terms of sort of both crowd and music, maybe? Yeah, I think it's really, really cool. And I think it's cool that they... I mean, it's one a festival, of, by the way. It is. It's it not is, a yeah. night, is it? It's, it's a, a festival yeah. in the in the woods of rural Pennsylvania, and in which many queer people gather and dance to music. And I think like there's kind of a cool intersection of like different types of music and expression. Um, and I just find the crowd really open minded. And it's also just kind of like fun. It has like a funness. Like, I mean, I was just listening to my, like all the recorded, some of the recordings yesterday and er, like every recording is just like, yes, bitch, like constantly. Yeah, you they know keep you're... a lot of crowd noise in the recordings yep. actually, don't they? I've got one. Oh, um, I think it's maybe E. Molina from a couple of years ago or something. And the cr- the crowd noise, because it's it's people talking, it's people making comments and it's all just so good. It's, it's so People good. should do this more having actual like narration. It's just wicked. It's yeah. so funny. Joyous. Like, I, I, yeah, I love it. And it's a, yeah, it's just like a, a lot of different ty- types of people. I mean, I always know that even at this place, like, which is like incredibly open-minded, like it's a huge risk doing like something that's like, I often want to do something where I feel like I haven't seen someone do that. And I'm just curious. This like morbid curiosity is like, I want to know like what would happen if I did this? And like, I was like, I want to do like 160, but like make it like sexy and gay and like make it really fun and like make it like so outrageous because you see a lot of that happening in like the house tempo zone. But I was like, I mean, I would really love to see that happen. And I like definitely try. And I was like, this could go so bad because if people are not feeling that, like it could be horrible. And like, yeah, everyone would leave. And then I was like, and then I want to try playing like really slow. And I was like, I don't know how that's going to happen, but let's try. And I think it did work out. But I, yeah, it's kind of fascinating that I noticed so much in the beginning. Like people were like, I don't know about this, (laughs) but I'm so glad I didn't because Actually, at the end of my set, I was like, oh, God, I did a terrible job. Just because, like, it's so it's so hard to tell when you're just there. And, like, even though everyone's, like, yelling at you, it's like, I just, I think I focused in on the fact that, like, a bunch of people left. And I, that was what kind of, like, stuck with me. I was like, damn, you didn't keep those people. It's like, I don't know. They're probably going to leave anyway. And, like, maybe they just needed a snack, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, how do you find the experience of playing festivals like let's say mainland european festivals and in in the uk especially (laughs) because everything you're talking about with your djing it kind of requires a bit of open-mindedness a bit of trust from the crowd and like clearly building that trust and connection so Mm. how do you find the experience of playing festivals where the crowd isn't as open as a honcho or a sustain oh yeah man it's hard um i mean actually to be honest i've rarely played in a uk festivals which is its own thing. I think that says it says something. Um, because I think people are like, we don't know. People have said this to me. They're like, we don't know what you're going to do. It's scary. Like, we, you're super unpredictable, which is true. And I kind of like want to stay like that. I want people to be like, I don't know what you're going to do. And I understand from a booking perspective. That I, d- sucks. I, don't, I, I don't know about that, though, because like people book, you know, 
Villa Lobos or like object weather. You don't know what they're going to do, do you? Exactly. I, there's something well, about is, that which is almost. That's uh, why I find it. Moody man. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Kings of Leon track you might get with some of these people. So totally. That's why. I mean, I find it frustrating because I'm like, that's why I'm like, how come this selector DJ you trust and you don't trust me? Yeah. Why yeah. don't you trust me? Yeah. Like, why don't you think I'll do a good job? And I think to a certain extent, these people have been around enough where like people trust them enough and they're still gaining that trust of me or the public consciousness is, mm. which could be like, I also like agree that like you have to earn your right to feel like that. But sometimes I do Kings get, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, you yeah. got to earn your, earn your stripes <laughs> to play Kings of Leon at the rave. But at a certain extent, I also feel kind of indignant. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm like, fuck like, why is it so hard to understand? I will do, I am I am also flexible. I will do a good job, but I'm not going to, like, play a set of bangers just because that's the only thing that's required. I will always do a, at least most, mostly me. So, yeah, in answer to your question, like, there's a part of my sound which is, like, objectively just, like, fun and cheeky and, like, sexy and, like, weird. And I think, like, the, the way that intersects can work in like some festival context and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes people everyone leaves and like over the last few years I've had a few festivals where it's like the person before me is like crushing it they're playing like the best set and like (laughs) or like to the crowd you know and like it's just not what I would play and then I go on and I'm a huge bummer because I'm I'm not gonna continue that vibe necessarily and everyone leaves and i mean i'm not gonna lie i've had so many times where i'm like oh my god like i'm so terrible at my job like i can't make people stay but then i interact with people like i don't know like lena willikins people like her actually she's one huge shout out like she also helped me like define my sound early on because i remember we booked her for one of the first ever tough events and i just just oh, very s- quickly. What's yeah. tough? Oh yeah, tough was a crew of people that were it was a Facebook group um, that then became like a big internet. Uh, yeah, a big Facebook group, which is v- vaguely like people who are not men who are interested in music, and then it kind of became like an event thing, and then it very much snowballed into, I guess, like people who were doing an event and kind of like a Facebook group, and that became a bit confusing. It was definitely a, a project a project of its time in the mm. femme non-binary uh uh quote unquote like music collectives and we kind of yeah like I was a part of the group and like definitely was one of the people who was very involved in doing the events. Um but it also was very much a thing of its era, I think. I do have one brief question about that, but maybe mm. just finish off on Lena Willikins because that was where we Oh yeah. Lena Willikins. So yeah. I remember we booked her and I just admired her so much precisely for this reason. She never really doesn't do her and that (laughs) it's that's like conviction and bravery that like allows audiences to become more open minded. I I know she does like she's an incredibly empathetic person and like looks and does change what she does like it within her own realm for sure but she would never just like start playing tech house because people didn't like what she was mm-hmm. playing mm. um and i think that like i'm so happy that someone like her exists because like i think 
it encourages a level of patience that people are not willing to have otherwise if everyone's just like, well, this isn't going well, time to play my like bangers folder and like give up. Honestly, this is super lacking to me in like the 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 sphere of events right now. It's like people want what they expect and they they're afraid of what they don't expect. And I just find that incredibly frustrating. Like, I don't want to be babied. I don't want to show up at an event where, like, I know exactly what to expect and it's going to happen. What's the fucking point of that? Like, I, I don't know. It's so boring to me. I mean, I even read, like, Eleanor Ferrante wrote, the, or has a quote where it's like, I, want, I aim to veer away from what is expected of me because I, like, view more highly of the reader than to just divulge what everyone expects there's also this huge notion several djs who are much bigger and more established than me would be like you play your weird style now but when like people stop giving a fuck you're gonna need to play to the big room and i've just been like no fuck you i'm not gonna do that i don't care i like will still keep doing me um i was gonna drop this because of time but as as we just briefly (laughs) touched on it um I mean, very clearly, one of the biggest changes to dance music culture since like we all got involved is that so 10 years ago when we were working together at Fact, when I first started working there, um, there were like no non-men DJs, really. <laughs> there were like yeah. a few. And then suddenly there was this moment. And I'm, we're really talking in like the last like maybe seven years, really. Like that's for all sure, it's been. And, we, and the, the pendulum has swung you know, arguably too far the other way. Um, But it's like, there was this moment when, um, I I think, I gather this is what happened with the founding of Tough. And also there was that Colombian collective called Knot, uh, run by um, a DJ called Juliana. And there was also Female Pressure had done this before, but they made a spreadsheet. Made a spreadsheet. spreadsheets. And we're like, here are all the there was one that you can book. There's one in the Pacific Northwest specific as well. Right, right, right. And but but you're right that we're not in that moment anymore. And I thought maybe it'd be interesting to just get a few reflections on the kind of the kind of um the transition. Because obviously we have made amazing strides in making space for some different demographics. And but perhaps you have a slightly more nuanced take on where that's yeah i mean i think things always happen as a result of the need for a certain thing and often the solution is not a permanent solution and it's temporary and also it can feel a little tenuous when it is that when it is to fill a void Mm. um so like for example in the year whatever 2013 when this started kind of happening or a bit earlier it was like I mean, it was palpable. There were, there was no, there was, a, I think that's the key word as well. There was only cis white men mostly in doing this as a profession. And there was a few other people, but it was mostly them. And so people understandably were like, well, there's all these other people and we are not being represented. So you kind of then band together. And I think one of the benefits and one of the issues of this is that when you're banding banding together in the uh, absence of something, it kind of leads to like a categorization, which is like, can then turn out to be a little strange. Because I kept being like, you know, when these groups started forming, it was like, well, this is for women. And then we were like, wait a second, that's turfy as hell. Like, you mean like mm. like women and cis women? Mm-hmm. Or like, you mean women and non-binary persons and 
yeah, cis yeah, women. Yeah, yeah. And then it kept getting broader and broader. And it was like, wait a second. So we really kind of just mean nobody who is like um, a cis man. And then we were like, right, okay. And like, I actually do think for a while that was useful because it was necessary because of what was happening. And it did provide a really important space, like for people to connect, for people to learn and for people to uh, make shit happen. And from my perspective, that did happen in Seattle through that and through many other groups who were incredibly influential in making that happen. But a lot of it was like, we are reacting against the fact that there's no space for us. Um, and like, we are a bunch of different demographics of people and we're just, and we're acting as in unison of the idea of there's no space for us. What does, this is also what my issue with the acronym FLINTA is as well, because it's basically saying- What's the acronym FLINTA? Female, lesbian, intersex, uh, non-binary, trans, and asexual, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. is the A, God, uh, plus- and they basically mean like non-men, but my my issue with looping in a bunch of people's identities and speaking for all of them, I have some issue with that. Because you're basically just saying like, you mean non-cis men. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, this go kind of is also why tough ended because like, this is like re- seeking to represent a bunch of people, but it's like, it's too vague in what its goal is at this point because we've kind of moved past the need for like this being a thing. Yeah, the campaign achieved its aims really. It, it like really if, you, did. if you look at who is taking up space in various different scenes, yeah. not just queer scenes, and but like generally. so many. Like I do think like it was useful, but I don't know if it as a concept is useful anymore. That's how I feel. It was it was useful as an action a place of action and like for things to happen but as a like collective conscious or collective whole like i don't think it that makes a lot of sense to me just like the non-men in music it's like there's so many that also feels quite reductive to me in a way just like this large group of people who vaguely are not men are like all united in some way just mm-hmm. because by virtue of them not being men i'm like there's loads of methods of expression in between that that I feel like is being ignored by being lumped in altogether. And then it becomes more obvious that like there's a, there's a hell of a lot of white cis women who are taking up a hell of a lot of space now. We don't we don't necessarily need this like girl boss machine to like come through and like tell people <laughs> that like these people should be booked now. Like we've moved way beyond that. Like there's other people who are being left behind. And I think there has been a reaction to that, like the the creation of Black Artist Database, for example, and Nix and all of these wonderful folks also, I mean, also came about as a result of that. Mm, And it's like, I think people are reacting to different moments in time in which there is a need. And I think it's good when something serves a need, but then it also, that that also ends Mm. when it's no longer needed. So as a, as a journalist, I've really felt that this um, personal identities and particularly sort of queer Mm. identities have been quite rapidly sort of commodified into the system. You see it in press releases a lot. Sometimes it's in like the subject line of an email, you know, queer something, something DJ from this place, whatever. Then sometimes it can be used as like the hook really for like an an artist's entire sort of 
output or mode of being. And I think on one hand, like you say, if, if, if that's achieved certain aims, if it's made perhaps parties better spaces to be in, if it's made communities stronger, then, then that's good. But I think that on the other hand, there's obviously this element of boxing people into, like you say, these really quite too big and vague categories, but also this thing of where, you know, your identity is like your your very like personal, you know, gender or sexual identity is kind of your brand and yeah, your you're demographic. Commodifying, and, you're commodifying these like yeah. super vague terms, which feels kind of weird to yeah. me. And and it makes you both easier to market and easy to mark easier to market to as well. And yeah. it's actually um of course it was um, Matt Dryhurst talked about this in a great um talk from I don't know, like 2019 or something, about this thing of of the creation of new novelty all the time um, is part of, you know, it's part of the, the capitalist system. But it also means that you're creating constantly new demographics to market to. And I think I think that just feels really palpable at this stage. It feels like we, very we, palpable. There are some cynical things going on with like, you know, events in London that may have happened last weekend where people are brought together to supposedly be under this huge banner. And it's like, what is this banner now? Because there are other differences within those groups that yeah, perhaps are more I important think, on I a think, day-to-day basis. I think just being lumped in is something that I like object to in general and find really uncomfortable because I'm like, mm. I don't know if I agree with all things about this like collective group that I'm being applied to with indiscriminately. It also feels vaguely like it can feel a little insulting because it's yeah. like I fit in like, yeah, this is like a thing I you think I fit into. And that's kind of also why I have like, I guess, shied away from labeling my events as being a queer event or whatever, because I'm like, I think things are. Yeah, they are by action, not by like label. And when I feel like things are feel a certain way that's how you know that they are it's not like by labeling something and I guess my other I could go on about Flinta but I think Flinta is a reaction to things but I don't like it because also I've spoken with many trans friends who you know formerly did identify as cis men and now are trans women and it's like if you're like barring a certain like person from an event just by definition of, of their gender biologically and they're uh yeah how they are presenting right now when i believe it is can be such a fluid concept like that that just doesn't leave a lot of room for people to feel comfortable and explore themselves and while i agree like it's a reaction to you know Mm. cis gay events being like just men i I totally understand that but i personally don't feel i want to be like if you're a man don't come to my event because like I don't feel like I have the right to say that. I don't know anything about you. And just because you've been singled out and that's why I don't face check anybody at my events. I'm not like, okay, we're not everywhere in Berlin has a door. And like many Berlin events have like you get rejected at the door, like because a lot of people come and you have to kind of sift through. Mine is more about like, are you here for the right reasons? And what energy are you bringing into the space? Then like you look like a cis man and therefore I'm just going to deny you. Yeah. Tom, should we ask our final, final, actually final wow. question? The regular final question. I'm the regular myself. final question. Yeah, we always just ask people because me and Chow are both in a big film moment, like heavy on Letterboxd. Oh, amazing. What's a film you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, and to us. Oh yeah, to God. us. To us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, love movies. Been watching a lot of movies recently. Actually, I... There's 
a lot of um, kind of hilarious, like queer and queer oriented films that I've been watching. Uh, one of them that I watched recently is called Medusa Deluxe, and it's about a hairdressing competition in London. Have you seen this? I think I I've not. seen it on. Is it on movie? I feel yeah. like I've seen the picture for it. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Go on. Yeah, and it's a it's a murder mystery, and it's just like. As a like ex performing arts theater nerd, it like definitely scratches a bunch of my buttons about like it's like super camp and like kind of feels like a theater production in a way that I really enjoy. And it's yeah, it's about a murder that happens inside a hairdressing competition. <laughs> and like it's it like sounds great. it's incredibly. <laughs> It has like a darkness, which I I think like I'm always about like the moods of films. And I think this like also is kind of how I like become interested in certain like storytelling devices and DJing too. It's like this, this like the subject matter is incredibly dark and the way it's shot is incredibly dark. Almost has like a Gaspar Noé kind of like darkness to it. But the subject matter is like so camp and so like low-key silly and like funny and like the it's incredibly dark and incredibly funny and the like end result is like very surprising i will not give too many spoilers but um it just like yeah it encompasses like this like beautiful darkness and like realness but also this like surreal kind of like magic and like just like funniness and camp energy that i think is so yeah I think it's really, really well done um, in a way. It also just is like something I would like. It's 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 like definitely not like the 100% best movie I've seen in my life, but I think it's, I don't know, it really hit, hit like a mood for me. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you guys. As ever, thank you to SRP Studios in Soho for letting us record. Thank you to Jennifer Walton for our theme music and All Purpose Studio for our design. If you like what we're doing and want to check out more, subscribe or support. It is No Tags Podcast on Substack. Substack.